Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Today we're going to have a look at the Asian Tech Ecosystem, unpack it a little bit. I'm joined by Chirayu Wadke, who is an early stage technology investor and operator, partner at Seed Plus, formerly of the Indian Institute of Management in Calcutta and Google, Verizon, amongst many of the prestigious names that he's worked for in the US. Chirayu, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, you are the third partner that we've had from Seed Plus on the show. We had uh, Michael. Michael Smith has been on twice. He likes it so much. And <laughs> Tiang Lim Fu. I'm not sure if he was the first or the second on the show. But anyway, now you're the third. We like Seed Plus. You guys are pretty chill for VCs. Is that a deliberate thing? Are you just all chilled guys naturally? Because you, you don't behave like sort of the typical VC that people think about. You're quite different, aren't you? I don't know what a typical VC All right. behaves like, but <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, we come from, a, we come from uh, the operating side of the house, so we tend to sort of have a slightly different take on a few things. Um, so that probably leads to us being a little more relaxed and similar to some of the people who walk into our door. Mm. Uh, so having been on the other side, both from a operational as well as uh, other angles. It kind of helps us build a degree of empathy, if you may. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Yeah, Michael, who was on the show, Michael Smith Jr., he was talking about, he describes himself as an apprentice VC in a way. I don't think that's the, na- that's the name of his blog, I seem to remember, something like that. And... Uh, I mean, you mentioned it as well, being the un-VC. What, what exactly is that all about? No, I mean, none of us have traditional investing backgrounds. And I think when we look around, even, uh, you know, as early as a couple of years ago, uh, a lot of people thought that that's a background that's required to sort of uh, be uh, in the VC game. But I think as technology is progressing and decisions are being made based on you know, uh, a lot of it has to do with product and technology and how that's changing the right. game. And I think increasingly that angle becomes equally important at early stage, if not more, hmm. uh, when you don't have the metrics to uh, demonstrate. So how do you ask the right questions at that early any, uh, stage? And I think that's where some of our backgrounds in building products and businesses and technology comes to play, right? Because we kind of see we've seen things we've collectively seen many cycles and then we kind of try to bring those to bear when we ask those questions and make no mistake i mean we we do make our own errors of judgment and we're all learning so uh, but you know it was a different take on a on what was a a subject that was more finance driven yeah. Uh, be coming in from a slightly different angle. Do you consider yourself to be a niche VC or do you think that you're the future of what all VCs will become in the tech space, not necessarily in other industries? So, you know, the way I divide it up, as I said, is this tech-enabled businesses and this technology itself. And I think people have lost the difference between the two. I think what's happened is a lot of the businesses we see today are using 
existing technology and then slamming things over it. While there are a few companies that are sort of reimagining their technology at the mm-hmm. base level. Um, traditionally, VCs were supposed to be the former, I think, uh, sorry, the latter. I think what's happened is uh, the lines have blurred uh, and, and we've started sort of uh, going towards businesses that have the tools that are needed to build tech-enabled businesses. And the risk there is primarily whether there's product market fit, uh, less about technology maturity. Um, but if you sort of say that in the future, with the mobile wave kind of now uh, coming to an end, the question will be uh, how does machine learning or some of the other technical stuff uh, start to matter uh, and therefore who stands in uh, you know who's in the best place to make some of those early stage mm. decisions that are pivoted around the technology you're building uh, yeah. so, so you know it's a slightly different take I would say that we are we are a niche or we are the future I think uh, the question is you know uh, people are looking for the next big platform across the world Mobile's done, desktop's obviously done. People are talking about autonomous vehicles, people are talking about AR, VR, but nobody's, there's drones for a while, nobody's figured it out yet, and we're kind of in this valley of uncertainty. And I think, uh, but all those ideas are very, very early, and it'll help to have some degree of understanding how products have been built in the past. So I guess that's the, that's my take on it. Right. Okay. Well, Let's talk a little bit about that before we talk about your background, because now you're talking about building products. We had to talk about Google and working for Verizon as well. But before we get there, I noticed with interest, you you were in Geneva recently. Is that right? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's right. All right. Because yeah. I noticed something you posted and it piqued my attention, piqued my interest, <laughs> yeah. which is that you, went, you visited a Swiss watch company and yeah. you posted something a little bit controversial because that obviously had an impact on you, your your time at that watch company. Which was the brand that you visited? So uh, I shall leave that out of the conversation. Right, but okay. We are co- <laughs> co-investors in our, uh, in our startup. Uh, so we've co-invested with them in one of our companies. The company is called CoBioty and they are uh, in the business of... Uh, making an operating system, an application layer for luxury watches. And they based out of Shenzhen, Singapore, mm-hmm. Geneva, and Bangalore. Um, a couple of guys out of Nokia. And uh, they've done very well. They've launched six watches in India with a large brand called Titan, which is the largest uh, Indian brand uh, for watches, luxury watches. Uh, and now they are in the midst of launching a couple of Swiss brands, a French brand, an Australian brand. Um, I think those guys are, you know, up to a whole lot of good. And they have the, I had the opportunity to meet uh, the co-investors in Geneva who are sort of an old 150, 200 year old design house. Uh, and just observe them uh, and their thinking. And it was fascinating to me that, uh, um, We've kind of given up on the principles of built to last. And uh, it's all about, can I throw this out and get uh, quick feedback about the product? Uh, I think it served us in the web era very well. And I think it started out with Google kind of coming out with its, uh, uh, you know, its approach to agile and constant iteration and mm. 
I think it started slowing down when Apple launched uh, its phone and it was not easy to update an app every month. Um, and I think it's come to a point now where when things have gotten more physical, I believe we should be aiming to get back to some of those principles. I mean, the Uber accident hadn't happened till then. But now when I look back at this comment, I feel I, I stand sort of validated that we have to really be thoughtful about technologies that uh, are going to touch physical the physical world and be more careful about how yeah. we test them. And half done is not, you know, half done is okay. It was great when it was a non-threatening software on your desktop. Uh, but, you know, not when it's running the innards of a vehicle that's potentially can kill someone. And we saw that. So, uh, you know, that, that drove some of my thinking and the perfection that's involved in putting a product out. So, mm. uh, I, yeah, it was counterintuitive, but I felt like it was necessary because... Uh, cost of acquisition of customers have gone up consistently and today if you if you launch uh, you know the whole idea that you could throw a product out and get feedback I don't know how true that is anymore I mean you can but uh, do you want to a the how quickly competition catches up today because all the tools that are available is much much shorter uh, not used to be the case maybe 10 years ago not anymore you you can't have the same strategy and then Therefore, users have more options. So if you get early adopters and, you know, product doesn't work well, they have options. So I guess you have to be more thoughtful about how you launch your products, even on the software side today. Mm -hmm. If you were to take a, a startup, I'm not talking about any of your startups, but just any startup to any you know, traditional Swiss, Swiss watchmaker. I mean, let's just take, for example, Tag Heuer as an example, because... Yeah, They're well known. And I'm not suggesting that's the one that you're talking about. But so I'm just p picking random examples for argument's sake. You were to take any startup, tech startup to a company like that, or, or maybe even a more traditional Swiss watch brand, because Tag's probably quite, you know, a bit more sort of forward facing and technology savvy, isn't yeah. it? What would they learn? I mean, what would they pick up? What would you want them to come away from a day with those sort of craftsmen thinking about? I think. Uh the desire to, uh, the desire for perfection, I think, is something that needs to be thought about. Mm. Um, I think they would definitely learn a lot about how um, discerning the consumers are for those brands. Uh, thinking about the brand itself, I think a lot of software companies think technology and product first and brand later, mm. and it's almost an afterthought. I think they would learn a lot about marketing and why it's so important, how it's positioned in the minds of the consumer. Yeah. Uh, That's I, a long-term thing as well, isn't it? I mean, th those Swiss brands have been around. The ones that survived the Japanese watch boom, the one, the Swiss that survived have been around for hundreds of years. So they think probably in decades, hundreds of years maybe, right? Rather than just the next quarter. And I think it's a function of the product. The product is a... 20 year buy, it's not a two year life cycle then. Mm. If it's a 20, 30 year cycle, how do you make sure the technology that you're putting in there is not obsolete in two? I think that's the engineering problem. Uh, and, and a lot of brands struggle with that. And there's been some answers around modularity of the 
electronics that's put in there where you can swap it out for something better later. But I think that's fundamentally the question, which is, this is something that you don't buy every day, you buy once in 20 years and you pass it on perhaps to your next generation. So how do you kind of maintain that versus a software platform that is essentially supposed to be mass market? Mm. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's I guess, what a, those questions would arise in anyone's mind when and they interact with these kind of brands. Do you think there's any of, of the sort of the, the large IT brands out there, large tech brands in the world, do you think there's any of them that are taking this on board or getting it right? If you were to sort of name the ones that are, which ones would you say are more focused on that long term? I think uh, I think Apple's doing a phenomenal job. Uh, I know people don't give them enough credit for innovation, but the reality is that uh, if you look at the watch sales, mm. Uh, I mean, they've, they're outselling every single Swiss brand out there. So I think uh, Apple's thought about these things uh, consistently year over year. Uh, there's no, uh, there's, you know, you don't have like a uh, buffet of names. You get one brand and you get an experience that's consistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I learned is even even the Swiss think uh, very highly of Apple in terms of its thinking. Uh, that it is a luxury brand, that it is positioned and delivers a luxury experience. Um, I think the uh, it's hard to say if someone comes close in terms of that sort of long-term thinking. Mm. Um, I, I know that Amazon has a long-term thought process and they think in seven and ten year terms, but. But I'm not sure if it's the same sort of precision that, that Apple has the fit and finish uh, and the focus. So, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much that comes to mind. I've always thought maybe Bose came close with the kind of products it puts out, mm. uh, you know, and, and there's something to it. And uh, they never price discount. I've never seen a Bose uh, product being on like a 25% discount. Uh, and they do okay. So, I think there must be something to it, right? Uh, yeah. uh, and the quality of the products is just outstanding. So, um, yeah, those two brands actually come to mind when I, from the tech side of the house, I guess. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, let's sort of, let, let's put all of this into a bit of context. Your background, which I think yeah. is fascinating because obviously you're from India originally. You're from Pune. You yes. went to... Was it Kolkata again? Yeah, Kolkata Institute of Management you studied in. And then you left India to... Did you go from India direct to the US? What was the story there? No, I did a bit of consulting before I... Um, in India around. So uh, did some private equity kind of stuff, consulting to Goldman Sachs and Intel Capital back then around their investments in in this part of the world. Mm. And then, you know, based on that work, I think Verizon Wireless said, why don't you become a scout in this part of the world? So that's how I kind of got into becoming a scout. Um, but that uh, quickly unwound when uh, they wanted to do something major in payments in in US. And that's how I said, you know what, I'd rather be doing that than spending my time here because it seems like it's a little too early for a US-based carrier to be aware of what's going on here. Um, 
and also i think there was a vodafone angle that created some challenges because mm-hmm. vodafone owned about 49% of Verizon Wireless back then so uh wasn't the easiest of conversations because a few of the top management at Verizon were from vodafone so question was what am i doing in their backyard mm. um so i said you know why not go back and the project was to build what was a um, mobile wallet that was basically a standard like a gsma standard that would be uh used by everyone in the ecosystem for a fee and the idea was take a leaf out of the sms playbook and see if we can build a standard that works uh and uh, you know jv was created between AT&T T-Mobile and Verizon for that and i think along the way what happened is uh, the original sort of purpose was lost and uh, the jv decided they wanted to build an app ground up and control the whole experience and instead of building a standard and that's when i kind of said you know i think my time here is done so decided to start a company in the us did that for a bit uh raised a little bit of venture money but uh uh you know we ran into some interesting challenges with content because we were doing a video startup so i decided to quit uh my co-founders went on to raise some more money i think about 8 more million dollars um and then i decided to join google and that was that was it so mm. uh and then worked on the wallet next project was the router the wifi router then uh, worked on a couple of other projects including caching for youtube in emerging markets and then on the wifi project for railway stations in india so hmm. kind of got me back to asia in some sense towards the end of my tenure at google and right back on your radar how long were you at google for so about 5 years 5 years so you you Okay, just sort of review. You were at Verizon, then you started your own company. You were into Google. You did five years at Google. You got your hands on some pretty major projects, and then, so what sort of happened then that you decided that you had to sort of step up to the next thing because, I mean, Google could take you everywhere. Couldn't I mean, if you wanted to go to Asia, it could probably take you to Asia. you know if you wanted to work on something then you could probably do that at google you had the the bandwidth and the the resources to do that why would you then decide to go and come back to asia because that must have been an interesting conversation not just with yourself but with all the people around you like are you crazy why are you doing this so i think by then the objections had kind of changed right i think then it was a question of do you want to be in the valley or do you want to be in asia it wasn't you're crazy Uh, it did come from a few people i think what changed my personal sort of mind was i've been coming to asia you know i've been in asia 2000 to 2008 or 9 and then kept coming back mm. occasionally to you know just take a look what's going on and i kept in touch with the folks at jungle ventures you know i know uh, the founders for many years and uh, you know uh, i was in touch with them i was watching them from the outside helping them with a few things uh, as an advisor and then at some point I looked at the numbers both uh, at Google as well as outside in terms of just sort of macro numbers on consumption trends macro numbers on android device take up macro numbers on youtube usage macro numbers on payments and i mean i thought we'd reached a point where the discontinuity had happened 
and this was kind of irreversible and you know uh, with all the demographic trends and the economic trends in favor of this region uh, i felt that i may be a little early in terms of maturity of the market itself uh, from a tech talent perspective which it still is but i think now is the time to think about uh, investing in a few good ideas in this part of the world that are likely to get acquired by either uh some chinese companies or by some of the us companies or then simply the power of the the, the economy and the demographics to drive uh the scale of the business to become sort of a independent uh, large company hmm. so uh i thought that there was merit in that after looking at the consumption trends and how things were going and i felt it was probably a good time to look at this part of the world what year was this that you decided that you were going to come to asia 2016 actually we've been thinking about it in 2015 as well right. but i think uh, the numbers started sort of looking really good 2016 and that's when Got i started So I mean I mean a lot of people now are looking at Asia from outside and like with this podcast Asia matters a lot of people are interested in Asia but even even if you go back a couple of years 2016 2015 the the attitudes were slightly different people were less focused I mean you thinking about moving from mountain view which is sort of you know like ground zero when it comes to all of the the world's startup ecosystem you know it's like the the epicenter right to asia you must have been going against the grain or i mean how how did people think about that sort of decision because you must have been were there people around you at the time in in mountain view or in silicon valley in particular who were also thinking like that or do you think you were pretty ahead of the curve in that respect I think a lot of people would have taken the security of a large company to move here uh, and move to Google to see what's going on. Uh I thought that that's possible but that wouldn't give me the ground zero kind of knowledge of what's really happening on the small company front and what are the challenges they face, what's the maturity of the buyer in this part of the world both on the consumer and enterprise side. Mm. Um so I see a lot of my uh ex colleagues move here. uh but that move is basically uh in in a big company um so that option was was always there hmm. uh but no i mean i think uh, the difference was whatsapp in marketing the whatsapp acquisition changed everything i think uh uh before uh yeah. before that uh people thought when when you know WhatsApp was not around. If you showed them an application from Asia that's built for, you know, data light and non-battery draining kind of environments where the device doesn't have that much of a computational capability or memory capacity, uh, the UX doesn't look as fancy, and people would sort of poo-poo it. Uh, after WhatsApp. the term they use is optimize for emerging markets hmm. uh it's a euphemism obviously but yeah it tells you that the mentality seems to have shifted now uh i think the other shift that we're seeing of late that i'm hearing i didn't know this first hand because this is more recent is the uber exits out of right china and now possibly southeast asia are driving a thinking that a well financed 
start a well-financed company out of the U.S. is being forced to sort of leave because of various reasons. And I think that's driving some of the change. In, and, you know, people are now taking note and it's no more a question of if, it's, it's when. And uh, uh, so that's the good part. Uh, and, and there is a sort of not so great part, which is, I still believe a lot of companies in the West are looking at this from a perspective of, can I just take what's on the truck in the US, bring it to Asia and sell it? Uh, and a lot of them have that approach where product development happens in San Francisco or Mountain View. And I don't think that's changing for the next few years. Yeah, so they were selling what's on the truck. They're not really, um, they're selling what's uh, really works for them in San Francisco. And, typically without modification, bring it here and, mm. you know, sell it. And that's the model. You just have sales offices. No one really invests in understanding what it takes to win here. I think Amazon may have started some of that thinking um, with investing heavily in Asia. But uh, if you look at across the board, that thinking doesn't exist. It's mostly sort of a sales office in Tokyo, a sales office in Singapore. And I cover the region. And I hope that, you know, I can sell some of my stuff here and I'm not really going to bother optimizing for Asia. So I think that's been sort of the classic playbook that people have come here with. What is is causing that? Is that just laziness or is it that they don't know that they're ignorant to the, the numbers or what? I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, I'm British. I speak English. I can get away with speaking English anywhere in the world. So I can easily opt to not learn any language, right? In the same way, is it that, you know, Western companies or from the Valley, for example, can opt not to optimize for Asia because they don't have to, or they didn't have to for many years, right? What's the cause of all that? I think the the answer is they didn't have to. It didn't matter to them financially. Uh, And there was no obvious sort of competitor that was local and coming up in Asia. Uh, and that allowed them to think that they can continue down this path without really uh, doing anything about it and still win even if they delay their market launch. Uh, and that was right in many aspects, right? It was true. Uh, but I think increasingly what's happened is uh, that the story has changed and local competitors can be quite a thorn in the backside of some of these companies. So. Um, What's, what we're seeing now is a slightly different approach, at least with the big ones that have admitted that it's a different market we need to invest uh, versus Harvest, which was the approach before. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see, uh, you know, Google's got its own NBU unit that's doing a great job. Uh, I think Facebook's done something similar, uh, though I don't agree with that approach of doing the zero rating. Um, and then... I think you've got Amazon deeply sort of entrenched. Apple's launched everywhere in Asia, taking a very specific approach to Asia, launching sort of low-cost devices in India, for example. Um, And you have a bunch of others that are trying to be more local. Cisco's trying to be more local for sure. Um, But, you know, if you look at the startups, uh, the CD, CDE, pre-IPO kind of companies, they're still in that same mold. Hmm. For example, I don't see a Dropbox office here. I don't see a box office in the, you know, they're not here. So um, my assumption is they're not serious about this market. This could be a useful market. I mean, there are plenty of users around. 
and the I think Slack's now in Tokyo, but not to be seen in the rest of the world. Right, or right. Asia. Yeah, uh, I mean, all the places. I mean, it yeah. should be in Singapore, really, or at least Shenzhen or Shanghai, not Tokyo. You know, there was uh, I was trying to use Intercom the other day. One of my portfolio companies wanted to use Intercom because all their customers use Intercom, and then I reached out to Intercom, and they told me they're not here. Wow. So, uh, uh, and they've reached about $50 million in ARR. So I'm like, uh, well, you know, I can't blame them, but I guess if they were here, they would be looking at a hundred, uh, you know, a million ARR at this time. Mm. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's how things are actually, you know, uh, I, I think there's a bit of awareness. There's a bit of, uh, just lack of understanding of the market. And to be honest, I think, uh, Asia's not done any, uh, done them any good either right i mean the the behavior buying behavior here is still and i don't think china is the same but uh, largely in other parts of asia is still kind of risk averse hmm. uh, and that's something that we uh, will take time to root out which is if there's a reference customer in the west uh, that they can point to the buying behavior completely changes and therefore uh, uh, it's not to say whether it's good or bad but the but the reference customer to be necessarily on the Western Hemisphere uh, is a is a dynamic that hopefully changes over time. Right, right. That's just role models, isn't it? And you're talking about risk averse, I mean, risk averse buyers. They'll always look for a reference as an example rather than you know take a decision themselves, which is out of an example, right? So, I think we're seeing change. Like it may be a generational change now that we have. For example, like the, the, the growth of the Asian middle classes is a big story, right? I mean, you talk about your point about companies just turning up with the truck, so to speak, and just selling the stuff off the back to the Asians, which, I mean, it's a crude picture that I've painted, but it's sort of, that's how it's been. And Asia's very much been the warehouse for that market as well, hasn't it? I mean, it's just producing cheap knockoffs for many, many years. But that's all changing. And now we see... Like, for example, Asia to Asia trade is a big growth story. So I think by 2030, Asia to Asia trade will be twice as big as Asia's trade with the rest of the world. So Asia's bigger, biggest market for its goods and services within the next 10 years is going to be Asia. So we have an interesting dynamic, don't we, that we have this market, which in theory, it's self-sufficient in the fact that, well, I mean, if the West chooses to ignore Asia, well, it can get on okay. So that's going to put a bit of pressure on these companies that you talk about because, you know, they're going to miss out. They're going to miss out on the growth stories they need to go back to their shareholders with, you know, where's the next big thing going to come from? And, you know, if they're not here in Asia now, before it all happens, they're going to miss out because you talk about Amazon as an example. Well, they're up against Alibaba, Lazada, all these people, right? So, you know, they have to kind of build that out before they need the relationship with the customer, right? So it's changing. And hopefully attitudes change with that as well. But I think we're sort of seeing the, the beginning of it. And people like yourself coming to Asia as well. I mean, that's the sort of the beginning of saying to people, actually, this is a good decision for my career. You know, it's not just a big risk. Yeah, I think... Uh... You know, the way I look at it, the, the way it kind of shakes up, though, is when you think about how decisions are made in companies, and I can tell you this from personal experiences, when companies in the Valley or elsewhere that are not located here decided to make an entry decision here, they have to do a lot to their product to make it work here. And for them, the choice is sort of, it becomes a binary choice when it's a resource-constrained environment or, you know, you only have so many people. 
um, which is typically the case even in large companies. I mean, they don't have infinite resources. So you get a certain amount of resources and you're supposed to make the business case work. And I think the pricing models and uh, everything else here are designed to be of a certain type. They're mass market. You need to sort of have invest first, harvest later kind of models before you see the returns. And I think the cost of loading on engineering in Mountain View or in San Francisco onto Asian business models kind of breaks apart. Uh, so I have consistently told companies that want to do something here and localize the product to move their engineering teams here. Uh, a, it brings more empathy for the user mm. and B, it kind of changes uh, you know, the way you make cost decisions because if you have an engineering team that's sitting out of San Francisco, it's very, very tempting to actually just launch the next big thing in the US that will pay off and the ROI is kind of obvious. So the on an ROI basis, you possibly see that to be much more clearer, uh, familiarity as well as, you know, it's not, it's the same market, you're just adding on new features. Uh, whereas here, it's a completely different ballgame. So, um, yeah, it's it's all of the above, I guess. And, you know, if the way it shakes up is that's where things start to change, where um, the way engineering teams are constructed, the way product decisions are made, the way marketing decisions are made, uh, all that starts to sort of be more centralized. And uh, I think if these you start peeling off these teams and they start to be localized, uh, it's a very different equation. You'll see uh, much more impact. Uh, so I, I, I hope that's the sort of playbook that these companies take in the future. Yeah, I saw a, there was an article in... Business Insider, I think it was last week, Chirayu, which basically um, it talked about, uh, so, so they were talking about people commuting to Silicon Valley from outside. And there was one lady who commuted from Oregon, which was 10 hours away. And, um, you know, because financially that's that's all she could make work was to be 10 hours away. Obviously she didn't do it every day, but... You know, she lived in San Francisco during the week and then sort of went home to her family at the weekend, right? You know, I wonder when you look at those kind of situations, surely there must be like a, a pent-up demand for people to say, okay, we have to rethink where we're going to put these workforces, right? These engineers, you know, because if you take a a workforce from who, you know, I mean, if you're the first $5,000 of their pay is just going to go on rent in San Francisco, Right for a family, right? So, I mean, they're not going to get a lot of change out of that. So, you know, but if they went to a place like Shenzhen or wherever, you know, maybe a third of that possibly, right? So surely there's a, there's a very strong business case for a lot of these IT companies to move, not just, I mean, you talk about empathy, you talk about proximity to the market and so on, but purely cost. Surely, is anybody doing that in the Valley? Is anybody going around and saying, hey, why didn't you move your engineering teams out here? Or well, at least some of them. So I think there's merit to uh, the cost angle, but I think, uh, you know, in, in true technology build-outs and, you know, some of these products, I think uh, having the team together has its merits. And I think uh, quality of engineering teams in the Valley still remains the very best in the world. Uh, and I know that China has made a lot of strides, but if you look at it from a, purely from a parity basis, I think uh, they still have a long way to cover before they catch up. Uh, in terms of original thought, in terms of, uh, you know, new products I, that are globally acceptable. I think the value is kind of still out there. 
so I don't think it's a cost angle. Locally, you could make that case. For example, the, per the person you talk about moving from outside San Francisco, uh, you know, the valley has to get over itself in some sense because it's worked for 50 years or 70 years. So there's no reason to change it. I think only something that's existential can change it. Uh, so perhaps the rise of, you know, Chinese tech companies has been for the first time in its history, another region that's kind of become a challenger in many senses. And uh, that's been kind of uh, well understood now in the Valley. That, that's, that's the engine of growth from China. The, you know, the Shenzhen area is, is phenomenal. But, but I think uh, to answer your question, I don't think it's as much about, uh, you know, moving engineering locally to save cost as much as it is about understanding the local market and having empathy for the local user uh, and, you know, uh, understand the economics that are needed and the time frame that's needed to actually invest. I think that's what is missing more than just the cost differential. Yeah. What there would be the, what, what is the business case for any qualified or, or well-trained engineer who's in the valley to come to Asia? What would be the, and obviously there's a lot of personal reasons, but you know, if you could say to them, these are the reasons why you should consider it, because as you said, Silicon Valley is still, you know, number one in the world for quality of engineering teams. Um, why would they consider it? If it's, if it's not just a, you know, what the heck type attitude, let's take a risk. These people have got a lot to lose, obviously, by leaving the valley. What would be the case for them? I think in, 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 in technology, at least, I can't speak for other businesses, though other businesses tend to sort of have their own nuances. The size of market is, is, does matter. And uh, if you are taking a bet, you, you want to move to a market that's growing and large. Mm. So, I mean, if, if I were to sort of put my thinking cap on and say, where are the markets? I mean, I think after the US, it's China, it's perhaps India and it's Southeast Asia in terms of just the, the growth trajectory, right? So uh, if I were to look at that macro and say, do I want to be part of that growth curve? I think it's not a bad idea to sort of look at it and say, I think it makes sense for me to be in those markets where consumers are consuming these products and, 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 and there's high demand. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I can bring in something unique that doesn't exist in that market, right? Uh, so, I can continue to work on phenomenal projects in the valley, or then I can go to a market that's growing really, really fast. So question is, you know, which one do I want to be part of? Uh, I don't think it's an either or. People have to make their own calls, but there are advantages to both. If someone thinks they can work on phenomenally complex engineering companies here, uh, at least in Singapore, I think uh, it's possible in pockets, but it's not going to be on the scale that's in the valley. Yeah. But if you want to work on stuff that's, you know, that's going to be on a rocket ship because of consumption, I think this is not a bad place to be. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. One of the areas that you like to speak on and you, you talk a lot about publicly is IoT. So Internet of Things and smart cities as well. Where, where does that sort of make sense in Asia? Let's talk 
from the context of people outside of Asia so they can understand a little bit. I mean, we're all familiar with the Asian megacities and so on. Where does that sort of fit in with your thesis about, you know, the rocket ship when you think about IoT? Because technically still some of those phenomenal projects are going to be all based in the valley, right? So what do you see happening here in Asia? What excites you about that? So I think the difference is that infrastructure in the U.S. is uh, especially... Uh, traffic infrastructure is not the latest, whereas a lot of the Asian cities have recently deployed their traffic infrastructure. So if you're thinking about what you can do on the transportation, traffic management, parking side, uh, or even on you know some of the vehicles, uh, vehicular side, I believe that Asia has more current infrastructure today uh, than the U.S. The U.S. has infrastructure that was laid many, many years ago, and it still serves them really well. Mm. In some cases, it doesn't. Like the Bay Area is probably, <laughs> you know, the less said the better. But uh, we I think, uh, yeah, uh, I think that uh, there's an upgrade cycle that's needed in the U.S. for some of those, uh, some of those dead infrastructure. I'll give you a very concrete example. You know, I'm thinking about uh, looking at a st- incubating a startup that could have, you know, done some sort of traffic volume. Uh, recognition using machine vision. Hmm. We thought about it and we said, you know, where can it work? And surprisingly, the answers were it works in India and Jakarta and, you know, the emerging markets. And the only reason was all the cameras are new and they have the latest NVIDIA chipsets and we can actually do some machine vision on it. Uh, if you decide to do the same thing in other parts where the infrastructure is older, we don't have that capability. So uh, we'll have to rip and replace the hardware. Now, um, yeah, we can do that, but the cost of doing that would be much higher than, you know, some of the stuff that happens here. So from a smart city standpoint, uh, we see some of that where because the infrastructure is newer, then it's more capable of doing more. Um, I think uh, what cities in Asia are going to struggle with is just the population, right? Uh, and the fact that it's all mega cities and mm. have massive populations and how do you deal with all the problems. I think uh, the thing that I speak about publicly is the fact that every time I've heard about smart cities, I've seen this whole model of large companies making a pitch for being vendors to the government and selling technology. And that just breaks down for me because, yeah, the top-down model works, but internet, mobile, everything has changed the way we should be thinking about this, right? We shouldn't be thinking about a top-down model. I mean, we talk about blockchain and everything, which is decentralized. And then when you think about smart cities, it's all like one person, one entity buying everything and deploying it in the city. So it makes no, it's kind of very anachronistic, right, in, in my opinion. So, um, so my, my sort of take here is that uh, we are going away from the model of one central authority. We are going to a model of peer-to-peer, citizen-to-citizen connect. And they are deciding for themselves what they want to do. Whether it's ride sharing or it's you know use my house as a as a you know as a rest as a as a hotel, uh, whatever that may be, it's happening on its own without uh, government necessarily playing a part. And I think uh, I think that's where we're going to head. Right? We we need to sort of figure out how we're going to use existing infrastructure better uh, and let it be available to uh, to the people to decide what they want to do with it uh, versus sort of taking on the cost of administering that that public infrastructure. 
Yeah. Would that favour or would that sort of create a, a good environment in places like India and Indonesia where in comparison to, let's say, China and Singapore, the, the central, and I, I tread carefully here, the central governments, the, the local governments are far less effective at sort of planning this stuff. I mean, you look at China and Singapore, they're just phenomenal in terms of putting stuff together in projects, you know. The Greater Bay Area, you've got the, the Zuhai Bridge, and Singapore's just a marvel of sort of town planning. But what you're talking about, I guess, would, would be you know, that would sort of find its roots in places like Indonesia and India, where, it, for want of a better word, it's a lot more chaotic, isn't it? And you, you have the technology in place, but you don't have the sort of, I don't know, the willpower centrally to make all that happen or that whatever that China and Singapore do right seems to be missing in those countries, right? Which is, I guess, the, the environment that you want for that happen. Is that sort of where you're looking for these kind of changes to happen? I don't think I'm looking at uh, uh, any specific market when I make that judgment, actually. I'm looking at it across the board. I'm looking at U.S., for example, right, uh, where the role of the government is is gone, you know, down over time. People don't realize that, but in the 50s, I guess they were more active in infrastructure and public spending, and right. it's actually declined over time. And one of the examples I thought I should give is Nextdoor, right? I mean, it's a phenomenal social network in the U.S. that actually tells you what's happening in your neighborhood before mm. any sort of public alert. Uh, and it's not that the U.S. is uh, is chaotic or it's not. Uh, I guess, you know, if you're able to provide value to citizens that the government will have to spend tons of money uh, in in doing, I don't think there's it, it, the two are mutually exclusive, right? The government needs to do what it needs to do with its central planning, but not all smart city ideas need to be a large company selling technology to the government, um, and and it can be a combination or you know of of both, and that's what I mean when I when I speak about this topic publicly. That the startups that we want to see are not the ones that are taking equipment and trying to figure out how to sell it to the government, and you know therefore you have a smarter city. Uh, it's more about using existing infrastructure and figuring out how it could be used by why the citizens better. So we've seen interesting ideas around that. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, there was that TEDx, that, that TED speech, I think by Jennifer Pauker, who, I think it was the Coding a Better Government uh, speech that she did. And she talks about how, uh, she gives a very obvious, some basic examples about, like, for example, uh, you know, somebody found a raccoon in their trash can and the next door neighbor helped them out. And, you know, rather than the the citizen phoning the local government and asking them, you know, what do I do with a, a raccoon in the trash can? You know, her neighbor helped her out effectively by using like a local sort of peer-to-peer -peer network, not sort of next door, but something similar. And the sort of the whole sort of case studies was you could have this sort of like person-to-person -person technology and connection and do a better version of what the government can do in other countries, right? If you just sort of create the technology, the, the infrastructure to allow it to happen. And the important thing is, is people, people actually want to do that. People actually want to get involved. So to your point about what kind of ideas you're seeing, I'm curious to know where you're seeing this happen in, in sort of smart cities, particularly in the context of Asia. Are you seeing anything interesting that you can share with us that you think, wow, that's sort of a good example of grassroots smart city? I mean, I cannot say specifically which uh, other cities that are doing it on a whole. 
there are ideas um, that uh, that have worked uh, and there are ideas that have not worked and I think when I look at uh, some of the ideas that we found interesting there was a case recently that came to me around uh, you know using public infrastructure as uh, and gamified for for people to use mm. that was an interesting idea I never thought about it think of public infrastructure each of the pieces of infrastructure as a digital display uh, and then you know, maybe it works and we found that to be a very fascinating concept because you're taking what was obviously a dead piece of infrastructure and making it alive, monetizing it, getting people involved uh, through gamification, through you know, some digital interfaces. So that was interesting. Um, as again, bottoms up, it wasn't sort of, you know, someone trying to sell you some something to the government. Um, we've seen uh, ideas that have come to us from a perspective of uh, uh, multi-modal mobility uh, where you know you you use different modes of transport to get to your endpoint and we have some interesting ideas there uh, we've seen uh, you know uh, network uh, and caching related ideas at the edge of networks to improve the um, sort of performance of, of uh, some of the video uh, applications and these are that's that's another interesting area uh, so we've seen uh, we've seen some of these ideas that have uh, that have come up, but nothing at a city level where we can sort of point to the city and say, yeah, that's a smart city. If anything, I mean, Singapore is pretty much that, but uh, but not on a comprehensive scale. I think people are still figuring it out. I think people are figuring out what it means to have an outcome for consumers when they're putting in place all this infrastructure. So uh, I I think uh, I think. Uh, Planning is another problem in, in many ways because uh, they're used to planning for 40 years and uh, most changes are happening in 5 to 10 years. So how do you plan for 40 years in terms of transportation, right? So hmm. by the time you get to the end of the project, you probably don't need it anymore. So I think that's what uh, a lot of the city councils are dealing with. So it's an interesting time. I haven't, I haven't seen a comprehensive you know, example. It's probably just bits and pieces of ideas. Yeah. There, there was a. I sort of go back to your point about the the Swiss watch company and the Kool Aid. Do you think that when you look at some of these challenges, technology can solve all of them? Because there was that Harvard study, and I don't have the data to hand, but maybe you're aware of it. And they uh, they studied the the Dubbawallas in India that you know who deliver the tiffin food, you know the the, the lunch boxes yeah. effectively, and they would deliver like six million a day. And um, the rate of accuracy was so high. I mean, I don't have the data, but, you know, it was like a, a fraction of a percent of mistakes, considering how many they actually served up and delivered. That even if they tried to improve the system with, you know, the latest technology or some kind of machine learning, that they, they just couldn't beat the human double waller. I just thought it's an interesting example, because, I mean, I wonder if, like, maybe, maybe technology can't solve everything. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think technology needs to solve everything. I think uh, there are specific problems within uh, the tech space that uh, that need to be tackled, or rather, the space that need to be tackled by technology. I think uh, uh, one classic mistake people make is technology for the sake of technology, right? And uh, slapping on, you know, wireless sensors everywhere is not going to necessarily lead to better consumer outcomes or citizen outcomes. And I think it might be useful to just revisit and see what outcomes you're driving and see if a specific technology is even needed to get to that outcome, right? And 
I think uh, people are underestimating perhaps the power of uh, uh, you know mobile devices. Uh, there's a lot that can be done, and the number of sensors packed in that, when you sort of scale it across millions of users, can be utilized uh, much better than what it's been used today. Right. So I think uh, you're right. Technology for the sake of technology is is, is not is not helpful, and that's where the argument is stuck today with smart cities. I think uh, use cases are unclear. Uh, there is some stuff happening around mobility, which is interesting, but I think uh, we have to walk back from walk away from technology first view and say what are we sort of what kind of outcomes are we driving, and if it's a more congested sort of future that we see where mega cities are going to drive everything, then you know what what needs to be in place across different sort of parameters, and technology is one of them, but clearly not the only one. Excellent, Chirayu. Before you go, I'm sure listeners will be curious to know what kind of advice you have for, for those people who want to show up in Asia. So, I mean, you, you've taken, you've stepped out of your comfort zone and come to Asia. I'd say come to Asia, come back to Asia. Um, obviously left the, the comfort of Mountain View, which was, you know, possibly one of the best jobs in the world. And you've come to Asia, taking a bit of a risk. There must be a lot of people in a similar situation around the world. And, you know, some of them listen to this podcast. They hear your story and they think, wow, yeah, I want to do that. I want to get involved in some of the challenges of the future or at least get involved in that big shift that you're talking about or be part of just the Asian, for whatever reason, just be part of the Asian story. How do I get started? You know, if I'm working for a Verizon or a Vodafone even or a Nokia or a Google, but I'm not in Asia, is there any way I can sort of take that first step? What do I do? Yeah, I would say that do not uh, do not hurry into it. Uh, I think take one step at a time. Do the small things right. Uh, I would say that uh, just take some advisory roles to begin with and see, get your sort of, uh, you know, hands dirty uh, before you make the big shift because... Uh, you know, I had the opportunity to look at this market for many years. Uh, and I was on the outside, even when I was in the Valley, I had the opportunity to have a ringside view of the situation. So, you know, I kind of took my time in making that move back. I would say if you're making that move, just make sure you, you know, at least work on some projects that have a touch point in this part of the world. You know, see what you, if you, if you like what you see, then possibly you want to, you know, you want to commit some amount of time to moving here. Uh, I know a lot of people say just buy a ticket and get here. And I, I wish I could tell people that, but I would say, uh, you know, do a side project that mm. touches Asia and see how you like it. And then you can sort of scale up from there. Yeah, that's great advice. Importantly as well, everybody has a different risk profile, don't they? So some people can just buy a ticket and go, but I think most people don't want to do that they would they would like to do it maybe but they can't and it's not a good decision for them in the, the long run anyway but as you say is you can get involved you can get involved in projects advisory and so on and do it over the long term fantastic so Chirayu Wadke great to have you on the show thanks for coming and sharing your story with us and your thoughts philosophies on Asia and that sort of whole merger of East and West as well, because it's, it's, I think the important thing, it's not a zero sum gain, is it? It's not sort of Asia replacing the West. It's about them growing together. And we have to sort of create that connection, that bridge between the two worlds and a better understanding as well. Like you say, empathy, 
absolutely important. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate that. Before you go, where can people find out more about you? Uh, I think on our website, we've got everything that's needed. And if not, just write to me at uh, chirayu at cplus.com. Uh, I think it's pretty simple. It's my first name at cplus.com. So it should, should be ideal. All the details in the show notes. That's Chirayu Wadke, everybody. And he is partner at Seed Plus. Feel free to reach out. I mean, if you're thinking of making the leap or moving to Asia, I'm sure he'll be happy to talk to you. And please come back on the future as well. When you have some stories to update us with us, you know, Asia so, changes so fast. So six months down the road, things would be different. So please come back and share with us. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.